If you spent any time in Cincinnati, you probably know the hulking white building with a tower on top that rises just west of I-75. In a city of architectural gems, the fortress-like Crosley Building in Cincinnati's Camp Washington neighborhood stands out for its size and its neglect. What might not be apparent gazing at the building is how much history making took place there. This podcast is the story of how a now-empty building helped change the world, and how the fate of the neighborhood around it is tied up in its construction, its boom years, its decline, and efforts to resurrect it. This is Crosley at the Crossroads, how a Cincinnati landmark mirrors the fortunes of the city. I'm Nick Swartzell. The 1950s and early 1960s were economic boom times for America and for Cincinnati. But Crosley's business was changing after Powell Crosley sold the company in 1946. Boom times for Camp Washington were also numbered. Lewis Crosley's grandson Rusty McClure talks about the company's final days. As World War II is ending, uh, there's a big change coming for the Crosley company too in that Powell Crosley is going to sell the company. Uh, talk about that and, and kind of how it formed the really the end of the Crosley company in a lot of ways. The decision of an entrepreneur to sell his company means that you have to talk about the entrepreneur. Sure. And so uh, the great American thought is you're going to have a company and you're going to get rich and it's going to solve all your problems. And if that doesn't work, you go to the BP station and you buy a lottery ticket and the same thing happens. It solves all your problems. But a lot of those people that win the lottery say it's the worst thing ever, thing, ever happened to them. And you could say that it's a cautionary tale to read about Powell Crosley. Uh, he had four wives. Two of them died and two of them he didn't love. The two he loved died. The two he didn't love, he divorced. He had a lot of personal tragedy in addition to that. And he gets to the end of World War II. The Crosley Corporation is the beginning of the what Eisenhower would call the industrial military complex, because now you have this huge defense contractor, you have this consumer products company, you have this communications giant in the making, and you have two brothers who've worked their butts off and are getting old and tired. And Pal, with all the misery of mostly not his fault, but not insulated by the wealth, tragedy has one dream. Get back on that horse and ride that car to its glory. So he goes to his brother and says, I'm going to sell everything so that I can have you concentrate on the Crosley car. And that's what they do. I mean, Pal takes the, the lead on that. He keeps the Cincinnati Reds, of course, because that's, that's a civic duty. They bought the Reds when they were bankrupt, talked into it because it was a good thing to have. The naming rights of the stadium is they, there's a delightful story how they created night baseball, but ultimately he's a fan. And he's a Cincinnati born and bred guy. And so he keeps the Reds until his death. When the foundation sells it, gives all the money away. So it's, that's not part of the business. But the business part is wearing my grandfather out. They have to transition now to a new world, a post-World War II world, and hopefully a better economy world. And they're just too old to do that. And 
take on the big three car manufacturers. My grandfather said, you'll never be able to make this work. The big three car manufacturers are too big. They'll squash us, but I'm with you like I'm always with you. So they sell for a enormous profit. Business Week couldn't believe how much they sell the company to Aerojet General Avco because you have consumer products and you have industrial military products, the likes that we were just talking about. So um, that frees them up. And uh, my grandfather could never get over the fact that Avco, Aerojet General hired 26 people to replace him. <laughs> he, and that's, that's bureaucratic America. You know, my grandfather did all this work and did it with, with and for pal. We say in the book, they never could replace pal. They could replace Lewis with 26 people. My grandfather said, no wonder they went broke. You know, they can't, right. you, they got committees trying to decide stuff that I would just figure out and do with my team. And, but the truth is, we're, how are you gonna replace a guy who can see around corners a visionary? Now they double down and they're going to build 11 models of cars. If you count the snowmobile as the 11th, when they build, like you talked about, the sports utility vehicle. And they build in 19, I think, uh, 48, they become the largest manufacturer of station wagons. The Crosley car station wagon actually is the number one station wagon in the world because the other big three and other car manufacturers haven't made station wagons. They're the only manufacturers of station wagons. <laughs> and, and they have a huge ride with innovations. The four disc brakes, the uh, car, uh, the copper alloy um, brass engine is a incredible uh, new innovation. And, there, and there's more of those that I don't think anybody wants to hear about right now. But they do the great thing for a starved, a product starved automobile, because if you think about it, they haven't made cars in the United States since 1940. Right. There's no aftermarket. The GIs all come home. They're going to start families. They're going to have lives. And they can't afford a new car because there are so few new cars. Only, only the older, wealthier people could buy a car. And there's no used car. Right. So the Crosley car behaves in the marketplace as the aftermarket car. Now these, these families, these young families have little leg biters. They grow up. They can't use a Crosley car. They need a back seat. They need a, a real car. They buy a used car. And the Crosley car product life cycle dies a sad death for Powell. And that kind of brings him in a sad way, full circle, right? To, yes, to the very beginning sad. of his dream. Very and, sad. Yeah, and, and kind of the, the death of his dream in, in a lot of ways. And and you know, it's 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 interesting to ruminate th on that as we sit in this building that is now empty and and you know uh, magnificent still and huge, but but also kind of like it's know, a relic. It's a relic of, of a different industrial time, right? And, yes. And and uh, that's kind of. Uh, I was going to ask you what the legacy of Crosley is, and I think that's part of the legacy. But what are there other things that you think of as the legacy of, of this this company and, and, and your grandfather and, and his brother? Well, um, I talk about that in the epilogue, and the things they accomplished are incredible, and they left legacies if you want to dig into them, because if you 
turn on, you have push button radio, you have disc brakes, you pull in and get home and you turn on the television after you've listened to part of it on the radio, right? And you, you're watching Monday night football, night football. Yeah. I mean, night major league play is the Crosleys. Somebody else would have done it, but they did it. And then you go to the refrigerator and grab a beer out of the shelf on the refrigerator door. There's legacies out there. And there's other pieces of the Crosley story. But there was no family above me and below the brothers because I'm second generation. Uh, There was no family that could have done it. It's one of the reasons they sold it. There was no legacy son because he died. And he probably couldn't have done it the way I see him in history, but most sons can't live up to these kinds of people because they're so rare. And so that's why we wrote the book. I mean, there's this great story and there's Doris Day and there's George Clooney making movies because his dad got into the entertainment business because his dad was a painter in this building. And he probably would have, they were so talented, they probably would have made it, but it would have been harder to make if they weren't from Kentucky coming to Cincinnati, and here was this dynamic opportunity to launch, to go to Hollywood, whatever they did. So people still use the proximity fuse. They ended up on uh, torpedoes. They use them to this day. All countries in the world know about the proximity fuse this day, and they're still out there, and they're still in use. There are places everywhere, I'm happy to say, that they study the proximity fuse as a case study at Harvard Business School. Wow. So there are places where uh, I get asked when I help teach that, how does the United States government come together with Johns Hopkins University types, the 2V types who were, uh, Mel Tube was just a uh, genius kind of guy, and then the United States military and private industry all came together to work on one thing together. And you kind of go, well, NASA did that once. We just did, saw it happen with COVID and the vaccines. And maybe the legacy is we could do more of that. The guys had a great run. Cincinnati had a great run. I think anything's possible. It tells you it's doable. Two brothers sit together and figure out something. It's helpful if they're compatible, but they're also they're not exactly the same talent so that when I do it, I'm not looking over wishing I could do. My grandfather never wanted to be Powell and Powell never wanted to be Lois. And those kind of complimentary, honest, trailblazer type people could be inspirations for the next generation. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rusty. Uh, All the history you've given and all the personal insight has been awesome. Thank you. Uh, Bob's story lived in Camp Washington right next to the Crosley Building from the 1950s to the 1980s. We stood outside his former house and talked about his memories, the final glory days in Camp Washington, and its gradual decline. I'm here with Bob's story. He was uh, the resident here at uh, 1311 Arlington Street. That is correct, 1311. Uh, and you were here, when did, you, when did you start living here? We moved here in the summer of 1954. Jim, my brother Joe, my mother, and mom and dad had separated, but they got back together shortly after moving here. So there was five of us in the house. 
unfortunately, uh, mom and dad did split up again. And mom lived here till 1983. Uh, my brother Jim, who owned the house, actually moved out in 81. He finally got married after all those years of being here, a single man, <laughs> got married, but promised to keep mom here until she decided to move out. She moved out in 83, and the foundry around the corner, Oberhelm Ritter, had been after this house for, God, for years. They made Jim an offer he couldn't say no to. And yeah. he came down to mom and he said, Mama, they've made me a final offer I can't say no to. And mom said, well, you know, the house is too much for me. It was six rooms. She living here by herself. It was just too much for her. She said, I want to move. Yeah. So the contingency was mom has to find a place before you take res or take ownership of this residence. They had no problem with that. Mom took about three months to find where she wanted to live. She moved out. They came down, took over the house. I don't know how long they actually owned the resident, but I know they were happy with it at one, one time. They had offices in here. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. On the first floor, they had some offices in here. I don't think they ever used the second floor, but I know they did use some uh, first floor office space. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to picture this as an office, but, you know, I think of it as as a home. What was it like living here? What, like, tell me about the house first, and then let's talk about the community around the house. Well, the house first, downstairs, three rooms. You had a living room here in the front, had a hallway that went back to a bedroom, and then a kitchen all the way on the end. Same as second floor. It was actually a two-family at one time. My cousin, Les Stauffer, owned the house when we moved here, and we rented from Les for about a year and a half, two years. Okay. Then Jim bought it off of Les. We converted it to a single-family house in 60 or 61. Two bedrooms on the second floor, and then we maintained the kitchen up on the second floor. That was kind of like a snack kitchen for all of us, sure. you know, my brothers and whatnot. We'd come in late, whatever. We'd eat upstairs if we wanted to. That way we didn't bother mom. But as a family, we had the kitchen, mom, dad's bedroom, living room. And <laughs> coming in at night, going through the side door over here on the side and going up 13 steps with metal strips on the side, I don't care how quiet you were, you woke somebody up. I'm sure, yeah. And we got yelled at many a time if we tried to sneak in past curfew. <laughs> but it was it was a great neighborhood. You had the Crosley Building down here, and the Crosley Building was running at its fullest. I mean, it was packed. Man, you had more people. I've got pictures I'll show you later. You can take pictures of them. This entire street, and over here on the uh, behind me, was their parking lot. They had more cars over there than you shake a stick at. I mean, it was completely full. At noontime, you could have fun watching the guys running up the street because right around the corner, you had a place called the Knickerbocker, which was a little cafe, bar, whatnot. Sure. Had a steam table. Across the street was Ben's, Ben's Arlington. He had a smaller version of a steam table, but they served lunches. Let me tell you, the guys running here looked like Olympic stars. <laughs> they had 30 minutes to eat. And they ran to get their lunch, and like any other employee anywhere, crawled back down the hill to go to work. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> you know. But we would sell stuff out here in the summer months. My brother and I decided one time we're going to make some extra money. Well, we're out here one night, had to grill out. We're cooking hot dogs, hamburgers. Guy said, what are you doing? I said, hot dog, hamburger, you know. 50 cents for a hot dog, maybe 50 cents for a hamburger. 
pop we were selling for whatever it was at the store, we'd make $10, $15 a week. Brilliant. Well, in 1958, 59, 60, 10, 15 bucks, man, you go to Coney Island and all over. Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. go anywhere uh -huh. you wanted. Yeah. Man. You know, <laughs> it wasn't like asking mom and dad, hey, yeah. can I have some money? You know, they'd come to you. Can I borrow five bucks? You've made some money this week. Can you borrow some? You know, <laughs> dad needed gas money. You know, well, that's right. fine. Then you had everything in this neighborhood you could possibly want, all within walking distance. You had a bowling alley. You had um, one, two, three, three pharmacies. You had probably four, maybe five dockers. You had um, your schools. You had uh, Camp Washington Elementary. Over the, the hill over here, you had uh, Concordia Lutheran grade school. You had Central High School, which I graduated from. My brother graduated from as well. You had um, Sacred Heart Academy. But you had everything you needed in this neighborhood. You didn't have to go outside this neighborhood. You could actually be born in this neighborhood, work and retire in this neighborhood, and never own a car. You had everything you needed. Employment. You had buses that went by. You had anything, everything that you ever wanted. And friendship, you couldn't be in a better neighborhood. Everybody knew everybody. Some of the things that we did as kids, just being mischievous, we got busted for it. I'm sure, I'm sure. And before we could get home, <laughs> mom had her phone call. <laughs> uh, your son did this. So as soon as I walked in the door, Robert, uh, yeah, mom, what? Uh, Mrs. So-and-so called, mm-hmm. I didn't do it. Oh, really? <laughs> sure. You didn't do it, did you? Everybody knew everybody. You could leave your front door open, never have to worry about a thing. Amazing. What were some of those things you didn't get away with? What was some of that childhood initiative? <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot now. You're putting me on the spot. One of the things that is very true blue to my heart, I was just telling Jan on the way over here today, we got, <laughs> got in trouble on a Saturday. It seemed like the German and Italian ladies would get out on the weekends with steel push brooms and clean their sidewalks. Well, being the 12 year old that I was and 12 year old that my buddy was, we decided we'd loogie the sidewalk. <laughs> well, that didn't work so well. We got grabbed by the ear, pulled up onto the porch of their residence, told not to move, and believe me, you didn't move. When them ladies grabbed you, you didn't move. They called mom, tell him to get home. So I looked at my buddy and I said, see you later, man. I'm going home. <laughs> we both went home. Our punishment for four weeks was to go down there on Saturday and clean that sidewalk to their satisfaction. But a lot of the German people in the neighborhood, you had German Italians that grew up in this neighborhood. Man, you had the Lentz Pickles, Isidore with the Pasquale's with the pizza. You name it, you had it. I mean, yeah, whatever yeah. you wanted in this neighborhood, all you had to do was reach out and grab it because it was here. Crosley's departure was an omen for the future of Camp Washington and a peek at larger trends of deindustrialization. In the next episode, we'll talk about how deindustrialization and other factors, including a highway coming through Camp Washington in the 1960s, impacted the neighborhood. This podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Nick Swartzell. Editor, recording engineer, and assistant producer is Josh Elstro. Original music is by Josh Elstro and Leo Mercia. This is a project created by Action Tank USA, a nonprofit partnering with artists to research and promote public policy solutions at the local government level. 
Action Tank proudly presents this project in partnership with our marketing partner, WVXU, Cincinnati's local NPR affiliate. This project was made possible with the generous support of the Greater Cincinnati Foundation and the W.E. Smith Foundation. <laughs>